Hello, and welcome to our fourth episode of Yesterday in Travel. My name is Kalina Fraga, and I'm joined, as always, by Brian Rogers. Hello, Brian. Hey. (laughs) Today, we're going to discuss a big moment in travel history, President Obama's visit to Havana, Cuba, in 2016. We're going to discuss that trip itself, what led to President Obama's decision to go, and how things have shaken out since the normalization of relations between the two countries. We'll also touch on what the constantly changing policies around Cuba mean for Americans who want to go there today. But first, as we do every week, let's talk quickly about the state of travel at the moment. Brian? Yeah, so things continue to be pretty dismal in the world of travel, and there's (laughs) not a ton of new news as far as changes that have gone on in the past week, but we did note that the border closure between the U.S. and Mexico, or the U.S., Canada, and Mexico has been extended again. So there will continue to be closure of the border until October 21st. So no non-essential travel going back and forth over the border. Although you can fly to Mexico. Right. You can fly. But if you're like trying to go on a road trip from Phoenix to Acapulco, you're (laughs) out of luck. Mm -hmm. Also, Hawaii announced that they plan to lift their quarantine rule in on October 15th. So, you know, who knows if that will actually happen. So many times different states and countries have said they're going to do things and then come time to do it, there's a new spike or or who knows what happens. So, but Hawaii, if they did that, that would at least allow people to go on a vacation there without having to quarantine by themselves for the entire, you know, the, the entire time that they're there. And then New York State, announced that it is now allowing people from California, Hawaii, Maryland, Minnesota, Nevada, and Ohio to visit. So for anyone in those states that really was interested in visiting New York, New York has decided you are now officially allowed to come. You're welcome. (laughs) There's things to do in New York now too. Museums are open, like stuff's happening. That's true. Although it feels (laughs) like a weird, it feels like a weird thing to to actually like fly to New York, given the history. But in other news, we actually flagged a few things that are kind of fun and interesting and mm-hmm. possibly depressing. Um, Qantas has a quote unquote flight to nowhere. They have a flight that sold out super fast in which they're just flying a loop from Sydney to Sydney. And they have said they're going to fly low level over various picturesque spots in Australia including the Great Barrier Reef. and It's so insane uh, to me, though, that this is a thing that people... Because flying is like the worst part of travel to me. Yeah. It's like something you have to do to get somewhere. And for seven hours, seems like... Yeah, oh, and they oh. are trying to sell it as it's going to be beautiful and picturesque. You're going to be able to look out the windows and see all these beautiful places from above. But like an airplane window is one of the smallest windows yeah. that exists in like the universe of windows. And it just feels like it's not looking out an airplane window at anything kind of ruins the view. Right. But I wonder too, if they're only selling window seats, like, are you, (laughs) is anyone like in the aisle, like on this flight to nowhere? It seems kind of grim. The aisle seat would be a super bummer on that flight, but apparently people are really into it. It sold out. It made a lot of Mm -hmm. like, there was a lot of publicity around it. People were talking about it online. So Good for them. Let's just burn up a ton of fossil fuel to transport a bunch of people around in a circle 
35,000 feet up in the air for <laughs> no reason at all. Mm. Sounds good. But yeah, even potentially weirder than that, in Thailand, there are now a few plane cafes, airplane cafes, where you can go up into a decommissioned airplane. You can climb onto the plane. You can get served, you know, a meal and coffee and get the sensation that you're up in the sky and being transported to a faraway place while you eat uh, maybe a mediocre meal in a tiny seat. And that's also become popular. Airplane food, I wonder, that they're serving. It seemed to imply that there were, yeah, that some of them were serving like straight up airplane food to like be consistent with the experience. Mm. But when I Googled around, I was not seeing that exactly, I think. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, the long, long story short, TSA throughput has not changed. There are still about 31% of people traveling through TSA checkpoints in the United States and airports. So travel continues to be a big question mark and no one kind of knows where it's headed, but it's sort of stalled out at around 30%. So yeah, that's where we're at. Mm. All right. So some things have changed and some things have not changed. Mm-hmm. All right. So before we talk about Obama's visit to Cuba itself, I think we should take a moment to get into the history between Cuba and the U.S. since so much of this visit, the big deal of the visit is because of their unique relationship. So you are someone who's actually spent a lot of time in Cuba and you know a bit about the history. So why don't you give us or try to give us like a brief recap of the U.S.-Cuban story? Sounds good. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to keep it brief. Mm. The relationship between... It's complicated. Yeah, the relationship is very complicated and goes back, you know, over a century. So Cuba initially, you know, Cuba was taken as a colony by Spain when Europe was conquering the Americas. And in the second half of the 1800s, there were various rebellions and attempts to kick out the Spanish crown and to declare Cuba an independent country. And, you know, they were brought down by the Spanish government. But then in the late 1800s, the war of the actual War of Independence that would later be known as the War of Independence uh, started and between Spain and, and Cuba or, you know, these Cuban rebels who were trying to kick out Spain. And at a certain point, the United States government got involved because the United States had become interested in Cuba as uh, potentially a place that they could bring into their own empire. And at the very least, Cuba was was a valuable place to sort of have in the U.S. sphere of influence. So the U.S. intervened and we did help Cuba gain independence. But that independence was contingent on us sort of approving their constitution. And we made sure that whoever was in power in Cuba um, was going to be favorable to United States interests. So uh, there was a lot of corruption and leaders, if they did not hue to the to American interests, um, they were either removed or, you know, through corrupt measures, there were ways of ensuring that each successive president and government within Cuba would be favorable to the United States. There then began to be a lot of tourism from the United States into Cuba, it began around the time of prohibition. So it was an interesting period where in the United States, alcohol was outlawed and people started going to Cuba where they could procure alcohol, they could have a good time. And that turned Cuba into this sort of playland where rich Americans would go in this like early age of tourism. Gambling was legal. Um, and since the government was 
relatively corrupt. And since there was a lot of dysfunction, um, Americans kind of could basically kind of do whatever they wanted. And that started this initial sort of resentment between the countries um, on top of the, the political stuff between, between the two countries. And this continued on until in the 40s and 50s, this former army general in Cuba, Fulgencio Batista, took over. He was initially elected democratically and then eventually through a coup d'etat, he took over. The United States backed him and was supporting him, but he was seen as super corrupt. Um, and there, was, there were lots of movements within the country to get rid of him once the coup d'etat happened. And eventually that happened through Fidel Castro and the Cuban revolution that swept through the country in the late 50s and in 1959 took over the country. The U.S. initially was kind of unsure what to think of Fidel Castro, but eventually um, when he started to expropriate U.S. property and businesses and land that was owned by U.S. companies, the U.S. government decided they were anti-Castro. They were going to consider Cuba an enemy of the United States. They were going to ban travel. Um, and that, so that was when the blockade initially was put on Cuba. And that led to a series of kind of back and forths between exiled Cubans who had fled the country and were now trying to start counter-revolutions in the country. There was the Bay of Pigs, which was this failed invasion that happened that the United States backed um, in the early 60s. Then there was, when Cuba aligned with the Soviet Union, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis in which the Soviet Union um, tried to station nuclear missiles on the island of Cuba, and that created this international uproar in, uh, and the sort of panic that we were approaching some sort of nuclear, global nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia. Over the next you know, several decades, there were a few spates and back and forths between various administrations of the U.S. government and the Castro regime. Um, one that people might actually remember because it happened somewhat recently is in 2000 when Elian Gonzalez, this small child who um, fled Cuba with his family and with a group of people on a raft, the raft sank and he was the only survivor to kind of wash up on the shore. And that led to a bizarre and protracted custody battle between his relatives in Miami and his family, his father, who still lived in Cuba. Um, and that was kind of the one of the more recent spats um, that led to, to tension between the two countries. But essentially what it meant was what, what all this has meant is that there's there was very little travel by Americans to Cuba since 1959. Um, and so by the time. Obama gets to the White House, the only way for U.S. citizens to travel to Cuba legally is through a narrow set of exceptions to the travel ban, which include things like education, if you're going through an accredited U.S. college or university, or you're going explicitly for humanitarian activities or as a journalist working on a story that requires you to go to Cuba to research the story. But in almost all these cases in the early 2000s, you're required to get permission from the U.S. government prior to your trip um, and go through this sort of bureaucratic process to apply to get permission to go. So I know we do want to get into the trip itself, but first, since you're more of a presidential history person, I was curious how much Cuba had ever popped up on your radar since many of the conflicts that have happened between the two countries do kind of raise to the presidential level, but I, I just wasn't sure how much of an awareness you had right, of Cuba. Yeah. Um well, from a 
when I was studying American history, because my focus was always on like U.S. history, the two things that would come up in relation to Cuba were Theodore Roosevelt and the Spanish-American War. Because one thing you didn't mention about that war was that Mm -hmm. the U.S. got involved. They kind of found a reason to get involved because the ship blew up, the Maine. That's the, remember the Maine. Um, And the Americans said, oh, Spain blew it up, which they didn't. Like, it seemed like it was like an accident. But the Americans came in and Theodore Roosevelt, like, was there and uh, uh, made a name for himself charging up, I think, San Juan Hill. And he had the Rough Riders. And so I knew about that and um, his relation to Cuba. And then, of course, like Kennedy's involvement with the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And yeah, the interesting thing that's always been like an American history and Kennedy and all that is that Kennedy was following sort of like what the generals were saying uh, about the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. And he grew to really distrust them during that time. Um, and there's this one of, mm-hmm. one of like the what ifs of like American history is like if Kennedy had lived, he would have detru- not trusted the generals and going into Vietnam, he might have been like a different actor than Johnson was. Mm-hmm. The Johnson people say that Johnson was following mm-hmm. Kennedy's footsteps and it would have been exactly the same. But that's one thing oh. that's, that always comes up is like Kennedy, it was like a learning experience for him um, working with, with the generals and trying mm-hmm. to trying to figure out what to do with Cuba now that the Soviets had moved in. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. so I would say that those two are the two that I would always think about when it came to like Cuba and the, and the US. Okay, so we need to get back to what the visit actually consisted of and how it came to be. Um, so can you give us an idea then of what brought Obama to Cuba and what his motivation was for this trip? Yeah, there's a really good 2016 New Yorker article about it by John Lee Anderson, which details the long process that Obama and uh, Ben Rhodes, who's one of his one of his like close staff people, went through to to make it all happen. But essentially, Obama, when he was initially running for president in 2007, actually in a Democratic primary debate, he made it clear that he was interested in engaging with countries that were historical enemies of the United States and trying to establish a new tone of respect and dialogue because he felt like that was a better way to go generally and specifically with Cuba. When he was first elected, he did take a few small steps to eliminate the rules around remittances and family travel to Cuba. So Cuban Americans were restricted under George Bush, uh, George W. Bush. They were only allowed to send a certain amount of money per year to their family. And this was seen as a way to limit the amount of money that was ending up in the hands of the Cuban government. So Obama removed that. He also removed restrictions on travel so Cuban Americans could travel as much as they wanted to visit their family and saw this as a nice first step in improving relations. But then his first term between you know the Great Recession, uh, the economic downturn, there were other issues that came to the forefront and Cuba kind of took a backseat. But after his re-election in 2012, That's when they started to chart the course for this new diplomatic relationship. And Obama sent Ben Rhodes to start having these secret diplomatic talks with the Cubans. And their initial goals were pretty minimal. They just wanted to try to establish contact and make some changes to some of the policies around travel to start making it easier for Americans to go to Cuba and easier for Cuban Americans to reconnect. Um, But as things got going, they basically at a certain point, once Cuba made it clear that they were interested in in negotiating, um, 
they kind of laid out all their cards on the table and said, listen, this is all the things Obama wants to do. So, you know, we want to reopen embassies. We want to establish normalized relations and build an entirely new relationship around respect, communication, openness, and not this sort of previous strategy of antagonism and isolation. Um, and, and then it began with a prisoner swap. So there was an American USAID contractor that had been jailed in Cuba as a spy for distributing cell phones and other telecommunications devices that were going to be able to not be tracked by the Cuban government. And so he had been thrown in jail for a long term. He was all, already in kind of an elderly man and um, the U.S. wanted him back. And so Cuba agreed to swap him and another U.S. CIA agent who had been in jail in Cuba uh, for a long time with these three remaining members of this group called the Cuban Five, who was this group of Cuban spies who had been infiltrating groups in Miami that were coordinating terrorist attacks on Cuba in the 90s. There's actually a Netflix movie about it that you can watch that's kind of mediocre, but goes into the whole story. It's called The Wasp Network. Mm. Anyway, these, these remaining three members of this spy group um, that had been put in jail in the United States was swapped with this USAID contractor. That sort of put things onto a good footing. And there really were like substantive talks that that started to to lead somewhere sort of around 2013, 2014. Mm -hmm. And so as these two things are, are ramping up between Cuba and the U.S., then the Pope gets involved. So how did that happen? Yeah. So the Pope, the, the Catholic Church is is pretty powerful in Cuba and maintained pretty tight contacts with the Cuban government. And there was a cardinal in Cuba who was close enough to the government there. His name was Jaime Ortega. And he ended up being helpful in just relaying messages during the negotiation process, relaying messages to the United States. That ended up leading to uh, the Pope getting involved and, and the Vatican being sort of a, a neutral place where the two countries could come together to actually finalize and sign on to these agreements at the end of the negotiation process. And so, yeah, the new Pope Francis, who was sort of seen as a little bit more of a progressive Pope, he ended up overseeing kind of the finalization of the agreement. And so then what ended up happening is in December of 2014, they they officially announced on TV that they were going to be reopening the embassies, loosening travel restrictions, uh, continuing to loosen the remittance rules, and um, most importantly, possibly legalizing all of these bank and financial transactions um, between the U.S. and Cuban systems, um, which went a long way towards allowing investment to come in and uh, really allowing businesses outside of Cuba to, to get involved, to legally be able to get involved in tourism um, and, and other economic activities. Mm -hmm. Okay, so all this was happening with the Vatican and the Pope and the Cubans, the Americans, before Obama actually goes to Cuba. So why does he even decide to go? Maybe this relates more to why anyone wants to go anywhere, but what did Obama want to do by physically going to Cuba himself, which is always a big deal when a president goes somewhere. So he must have had some ideas about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, the, the accords were reached in 2014 and his trip didn't take place till 2016. There was a lot of like logistics around actually making it happen. But from the beginning, I think the Obama team wanted to make, and this is all like written about in that, in the New Yorker article, but 
he wanted to make the new relationship as big of a deal in the media as possible because he thought that that would be one way to put more pressure on both sides to actually keep up their side of the deal. That would sort of provide momentum for it to actually happen. Yeah, I definitely remember it happening too. I don't, I don't think I knew about anything else like the talks or the normalization. I'm not sure I was paying attention, but I remember him going and like seeing pictures of him at like baseball games and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely covered in the media as a big deal. Mm-hmm. I think part of that was um, just the the historic nature in general. Um, but uh, also Obama was, I think, interested in making it clear to the Cuban people, not just the Cuban government, that he was for real, that he um, that he saw them and he respected them and, and that this was about them. And as much as it was an agreement between governments, his motivations were to improve the lives of Cubans. And he, he saw it as, I want to get out there in front of Cubans. I want them to see me here in, see me in Cuba and, and see me as someone that's like, that's on the ground, that's meeting people, that's like talking to people and and doing his best. He wanted to be popular among Cuban people um, because he thought that would be a good way of pressuring. Mm. Then Cubans could pressure their government to keep good to, to the agreement if they saw Obama as like a genuine player in this in this whole agreement. And also visiting Cuba was a big deal. I mean, I think Ob- the part of it was like, Obama wanted to have a historic thing to point to and traveling to Mm -hmm. Cuba, no U.S. president or no sitting U.S. president had traveled to Cuba since 1928. Um, I guess Calvin Coolidge went in 1928 and then Jimmy Carter post-presidency went in, in 2011. But actually you looked into Coolidge's trip to Cuba a little bit. I'm curious what you found because I didn't, I haven't like looked into it too much. I don't know too much about it. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a funny story because, well, first of all, it's interesting. So they took a ship called, I think it was the USS Texas Mm -hmm. and it, um, it docked right where the main had docked, but that Mm. wasn't like looking back, people were like, oh, that was kind of weird. Um, but what, what happened was that this was during prohibition. And so first of all, all the reporters were like very excited to go to Cuba (laughs) because they knew that they could drink in Cuba. Calvin Coolidge was a very like dry, they call him silent Cal. Like he's a very kind of quiet, mm-hmm. serious guy. There's one quote about him where they said, some reporters said he looks like he was weaned on a pickle because his face is kind of just like scrunched and <laughs> serious all the time. So he Ooh, was not- That's a rough. Yeah, yeah. He was not planning to drink um, in Cuba, mm-hmm. but he's at this diplomatic, like event and there's a big tray of daiquiris going around and it's going like right towards him. And he Mm -hmm. knows, I mean, this reporter watching it is thinking if, if Coolidge is offered a drink and refuses it, that might be not Mm -hmm. cool, but he can't accept it because this is prohibition and he's like all about prohibition. So Coolidge sees the tray coming and he's like very like diplomatically like turns, like look at like this painting. He like shows the person mm-hmm. next to him, the tray like kind of tries again and he turns the other way and like points like the, the view out the window and finally the waiter like, smooth. yeah, he was very smooth. Um, the waiter gives up and he kind of afford, avoided this international incident. Um, but then the other funny thing about the whole story is that meanwhile, all the reporters are just getting like trashed every night, these Cuban bars. And then mm-hmm. they find out that there's not going to be customs when they come back to the States so they can bring alcohol back. So there's a story about reporters like they're throwing out their clothing so they can make room in their suitcases 
to bring mm-hmm. to bring mm-hmm. rum back, and they all they all do that. They all bring it back as much oh, uh, as they can. Not not Calvin Coolidge, of course, because he was not that kind of guy. But uh, not that we know. Not of. that we know of. Everyone else was very excited about mm-hmm. the rules mm-hmm. down there. So this was Calvin Coolidge avoiding the alcohol and trying to be very diplomatic about it is is interesting. But did anything like that happen to Obama during his trip? Did he have to be careful about? Being with Raul Castro, or yeah, I mean, he was definitely trying to to stay balanced between pro pro Cuba in the sense that he he was offering up American friendship to Cuba, and he was you know signing this new deal and trying to initiate this kind of new era of respect. But he also didn't want to look too chummy with with Castro. Um, it's interesting when you said actually that there were a ton of press people that went down with Calvin Coolidge, partly because of prohibition. Obama's entourage, I mean, the, the U.S. entourage that went to Cuba for his trip was like, it was like a thousand people. And mm. some of that was certainly just the security, the nature of, of security of the trip. And Cuba being this place that the U.S. didn't have much security presence in. So I'm sure they wanted to make sure everything was going to be safe. But a lot of it was also just like anyone who in the government who could like finagle an invitation on this trip to to Cuba was jumping on board because they wanted to see what was going on down there. Um, But yeah, Obama, Obama was sort of like skirting the line between being, um, being respectful to the Cubans, but not being overly chummy with everyone. And he did, I think a pretty, pretty good job for the most part, the trip, since all the accords had already been signed, the trip was pretty ceremonial. And it was sort of, he also went with his family. So it was sort of a family trip and it allowed the family to kind of do a bunch of things that were kind of apolitical and just sort of like cultural and and trying to show that Obama was trying to get into things in Havana and understand it and appreciate it and learn about Cuba. So they toured Old Havana on a very rainy day, which meant that it wasn't a great day to walk around this beautiful area of the city. It's much nicer to do on a nice day, but it did mean that they had this flotilla of umbrellas. There was just this, his entourage was all these like big umbrellas, like moving through this, through old Havana in kind of like a (laughs) visually interesting way. They also, he met with entrepreneurs, which was this burgeoning private sector economy thing going on down there that he was trying to promote. He ate at a privately owned restaurant, which was a big deal. Uh, he went to a baseball game. There was actually a exhibition game between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cuban national team in the the big Latino Americano stadium in Havana. And he sat next to Raul. His whole the whole Obama family was there. Actually, Miguel Diaz Canel, who was the vice president at the time and is the current president, he was also at this baseball game. And they tried to whoop it up and have a good time. And you know, it looked a little you know awkward at times, but hey, it was baseball, you know, everyone, you know, Americans and Cubans can all get behind baseball. So for the most part, it went over very well. Um, The Tampa Bay Rays won the game four to one, which maybe was made Obama feel, feel better about that. I don't know how the Cubans felt about that. Um, And he like, he did a bunch of little things. He recorded some like video skits with some Cuban comedians um, to try to like, make him seem more personable to the Cuban people. Um, But he also did a few things that were very serious. He had a press conference with Raul Castro in which uh, 
the press corps was actually freely allowed to ask questions, which is something that never happens in Cuba. And Raul Castro never would subject himself to that sort of open dialogue. And at the at the press conference, Jim Acosta, who we all now like know from like the CNN Obama, uh, Trump press conferences, he asked Raul a question about political prisoners. And Raul gave a very terse response, kind of refuting, <laughs> refuting the idea that there were political prisoners there. But it was this interesting moment where Raul was forced to sort of address criticism publicly, which had never really happened, certainly with like... Jim Acosta, I think, is a Cuban-American. Yes, too. yes. Yeah. Um, so there was, yeah, there was some, there was, there were some tense moments at that meeting. There was also a moment at the end of the press conference where Raul Castro kind of grabbed Obama's forearm and tried to like hold it up in the air like they were doing sort of a victory <laughs> or like a f friendship thing and oh, Obama yeah. didn't want to like put his arm up didn't want to kind of go along with it because he didn't want to he thought that I think in his head he was like this is not gonna look good so he just left his it's arm kind of well, limp yeah. in Raul's arm and it yeah, made for a that. very weird photo op um mm. but I think it like it was Obama was successful in visually making it clear that he wasn't like so down with Raul in that moment. And he also actually Obama on his last day there, he gave a really important speech. He gave a speech in the Gran Teatro de la Habana, this big theater, one of the most historic big theaters in Havana. And his speech was it was very novel to have an American president there, but also to have them to allow them to give a speech. The speech was televised on national TV. And in it, he you know, he didn't necessarily hold back. He, again, he was trying to balance being gracious and um, showing that he wanted to start like a kind of a new period of, of respect between the two countries. But he also, you know, he also criticized the government in a lot of ways. He also in the speech, though, on the flip side, he called on the United States Congress to lift the embargo on Cuba, which is something that is codified into law. So it's only something that the U.S. Congress can do. Um, and all in all, uh, it, it went well. For the most part, the Cuba trip went off without a hitch and um, and I think served its its purpose. Yeah, definitely. He got he got the media attention, I think, that he wanted from that whole thing, um, for sure. So so after that happened, after the, the announcement of normalization of relations um, and the opening up of the embassies and Obama's visit, it did seem like American tourism grew a lot in just a few years. Um, companies like Airbnb and Google started having a presence in Cuba, and things must have felt to Cubans and Americans both that things were really starting to change. Uh, but with the 2016 election and uh, the, the election of President Trump, um, Trump started reversing some of these changes. So do you have a sense of how much changed before things started to revert and where things stand now? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of change really quickly, especially in on an island where for decades there had been kind of a stagnant economy and not much tourism at all. So things felt, I think, as someone who had been familiar with Cuba before all of this and after this. And I think for, for Cubans, my sense from the Cubans that I, that I know, it, things were moving really quickly. There were lots of new businesses in Havana, new private restaurants. People were creating, you know, home rentals. Airbnb was becoming a big thing. I mean, Air, Cubans had, before Airbnb, had always rented homes, had been allowed to rent homes to foreigners for the previous 
decade or two, but it really ramped up um, in certain areas of, of Havana, especially. But most of the change was only in Havana and a few of other of the other tourist towns. So some of the on the flip side, some of the criticisms are that, yes, there was lots of change going on in Havana, the capital, by far the biggest metro area on the island. And in a few little spots where tourists, you know, historic towns where tourists like to go. But other than that, across the countryside and in more rural parts of the island, there was not a lot of change. There was not a huge influx of tourism dollars or investments or, you know, not a lot of change to general to daily life. I've read, too, that there has been criticism that Havana became sort of like Disneyland-ified mm-hmm. in that it was sort of redone. And um, with all these American tourists coming in, there was just a change sort of the vibe of the city in a way that some locals were not super happy with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, old Havana before all of this happened was very quiet. I mean, there were old Havana was just like any other area of the city before all of this happened, which meant there were not many businesses, you know, there's a lot of a lot of poverty in Old Havana, and it wasn't like a place you would go for nightlife or for restaurants. I mean, there, there mm. just weren't a lot of restaurants in general beforehand. And then the change, I mean, they, they painted everything, they rebuilt um, historic buildings, and all of that I think was seen as as good. But in order to do that, they had to remove some people from the places they lived, and there was some tension around that. Um, some mm. residences were turned into businesses, um, and the government had this kind of plan to to remake Old Havana. And I wouldn't say that at the at the peak of of tourism in twenty say twenty sixteen or, or so, there were. It's not like there were hordes of tourists in the way that there are hordes of tourists in Paris in at like the peak of tourism. But because mm. it was such a change from like almost no tourists, just like five ten years before, it felt like it was over touristed just with yeah it's like a whiplash yeah yeah totally totally um mm. and it completely yeah it completely changed the vibe of of the area and really like the whole city changed um mm-hmm. right so so the big change of course was when trump was elected and i don't know if you want to talk about the changes that he's made yeah i think a lot of what he's done has been kind of superficial and he's mm-hmm. you know he's clearly his messaging and his outward positions are that he's against uh the obama opening and he's attempted to make a few changes to revert things. So he's removed, he's, he's made it illegal for cruise ships to go to Cuba. That was something that started happening in, when Obama made the changes. There were all these cruise ships coming into Havana. That got shut down. Some of the, the categories of legal travel to Cuba got shut down, like the people-to-people category. And there's been no new engagement, so they haven't allowed new U.S. businesses to kind of get involved. But for the most part, the the new regulations have more just kind of served to scare people from going and confuse people on what the rules are, which has diminished the amount of people that are going. But even before COVID, there were lots of Americans still traveling to Cuba. Mm-hmm. So some of, I mean, he made a few changes, but for the most part, the changes have been kind of superficial. Yeah, it's mostly just muddying the waters. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's bring it back to travel and looking at what we might learn from this moment. It seems like it's safe to say that Obama's engagement with Cuba was a net positive, that the U.S. tourists who started to visit and the renewed diplomatic ties seem to have had a lasting effect. And overall, this has been a positive change. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think broadly speaking, definitely there have been millions of Americans that have been able to go to Cuba and learn about it and get a chance to experience Cuba firsthand 
which starts to break down some of the, even subconsciously, just sort of our understanding of what a quote unquote socialist country looks like, or, um, you know, this history of this sort of Cold War history that we all learn about in school, we start to like actually put people, you know, when you visit a country, you start to actually meet individual people and realize that there's like a lot more going on underneath the sort of broader structures that we learn about. Um, and likewise, I think Cubans benefited in the sense that it was it was a little boost to the economy, which they desperately needed. And Cubans got to meet Americans and dispel some of the fear around that that they learn about who who the United States is and who Americans are. And, you know, in the same way that we have anti-communist propaganda in the U.S., Cuba has certainly has a steady feed of anti-U.S. propaganda. So, just that mixing um, was certainly positive. Mm. But most importantly, I think, was the opening allowed Cubans and Cuban Americans, people who had, Cuba has this huge diaspora of people who were born on the island or their parents were born on the island, but they, they've fled to all countries all over the world. I've been like, I've, I've been in like Slovenia and I met like a Cuban guy working at like a gyro shop who had like married someone in some Eastern European person and moved out there. And like everywhere you go, there's Cubans all over the place. And so, <clears throat> and it's been really difficult, especially for the Cuban Americans who have left the country to stay in touch with their family, to support their families, to connect um, or reconnect after many years of being kind of estranged from, <clears throat> from their family. So in that way, I think all of this opening allowed Cuban Americans to start to reconcile um, their history. And there was even this nonprofit organization called the Cuba One Foundation that started up um, around around the Obama opening, um, which was sort of like a birthright organization in which Cuban Americans, you know, the, the sons and the daughters and, and grandchildren of Cubans who had fled Cuba over the years um, could, could apply to this program and actually go back to Cuba and meet their families for the, and oftentimes they had, no one had spoken to relatives for decades. And so, it was this uh, program that allowed that reconciliation to start happening. Um, and all of that was is just like hugely positive in terms of starting the process of reestablishing some sort of normalization around the broader international Cuban community, which still mm. feels like Cuba is their homeland, but many feel very conflicted about the government. Um, but unfortunately, of course, it was just this at this point, it was kind of a brief blip and many of the economic improvements have kind of stalled out right now because of Trump and because of COVID. And so right now it's kind of a still a precarious mm. situation. The government, the economy is, is not doing very well. So, so it's, been, it's been a mixed bag, but I think there have been um, some improvements that will hopefully endure beyond COVID and hopefully you know, beyond whatever U.S. regime is in, is in power moving forward. But anyway, I've rambled on a lot since I have a lot of personal experience. Uh, but you're looking to potentially go to Cuba for the first time at some point. And part of your work over the past few years has been writing on travel and writing on Cuba travel specifically. So you're probably more up on the rules than me at this point. So what would you say to someone who still wants to go to Cuba after it's safe again? Is it possible? How do people do it? What would you say in terms of advice? Yeah, it's it's definitely possible. And it's it's funny because one thing that people search most often is, can I travel to Cuba? You know, can Americans travel to Cuba? Mm -hmm. Which 
it kind of goes to show that although Obama had this big public trip, um, the confusion around the rules has people don't know if they can go. Even if you speak to someone who knows a lot about travel, they might be unsure about the rules. And the short answer is yes. Well, that's <laughs> so complicated. Right now, no. You pro- if you're an American, you really can't go to Cuba because of, of COVID and the, the rules and stuff. Mm-hmm, but right. before COVID, yes, Americans could go to Cuba. Um, you didn't have to fly through. Hey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some honking behind me. Um, you didn't have to fly through Mexico or Canada, which was what a lot of people would do. Mm-hmm. Um, to go to Cuba before now you just need to follow a couple of like pretty simple rules, um, which involve like keeping a record of what you're doing, um, mm-hmm. like an itinerary basically. And you can't stay in like certain, I believe like government owned hotels or go to like certain government sponsored stores, I believe. Yeah, yeah. actually. So there's an update as of, a, I think two days ago, mm. the Trump administration came out with new rules that now say you can't go to any hotels. So you have to stay at a private a private casa mm. and you also are no longer allowed to bring back mm. rum any alcohol products or any tobacco products which is new does that apply to airbnb i wonder that new rule do they qualify as a hotel the, no those don't qualify as hotels mm. just like like official state-run hotels there used to be some that were exceptions and now there are no exceptions mm. okay so it's still pretty complicated the other thing now is that one of the rules that the trump administration um created was that Americans can only fly into Havana, the Havana airport, mm-hmm. which at the moment is closed. Um, but it's, it's supposed to open up soon. It's supposed to open up in like October, but it's like kind of shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. at the moment, tourists are allowed from like Canada or certain places in the European union, but they can only stay in the Cuban keys, which are populated with government owned hotels. So Americans, a can't fly there and B can't stay there, but you know, mm-hmm. all this stuff is going to shift in the next couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, Cuba has been doing an okay job with COVID, but they have had a few spikes. So, and they're being very careful about shutting things down, but hopefully at some point Mm -hmm. they'll start to let tourism come back more broadly. And at that point, certainly like, unless something happens between now and then with, with the Trump administration, Americans are still legally allowed to go. So. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens after the election, because if it's if Trump is reelected, mm-hmm. I mean, we might see the rules getting more strict. If Biden's elected, it might be that he loosens things up being, you mm-hmm. know, part of that team, the Obama Biden team. Yeah, true. We will have to see. <laughs> um, OK, let's wrap it up. That's our show. Uh, thank you again for listening. And we wanted to actually give a special thanks to a good friend of ours, Miles Salerni, who helped us with the theme music. So thank you, Miles. Um, we really appreciate it. And we keep we, we kept forgetting to, to thank you <laughs> in our first few episodes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Miles. I, I, I love our theme music. So um, to our listeners, if you have feedback, you can send us an email at yesterdayintravel at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter uh, at yesterdayintrav. And we're posting about travel history and sharing links about the episodes and and more content from the shows. Yeah, and please watch your feed for our next episode in which we discuss the release of the 1977 album Trans Europe Express by the German electronic music pioneers Kraftwerk and what it had to do with the actual Trans-European Railway Service and the evolution of the development of a common European identity. I'm especially excited for that because I'm learning German right now and I think European history is, yeah, it's fascinating. That'll be a good one. 
Um, all right. So if you like the podcast, uh, please write us a review in the Apple podcast app, if you have a moment or share it with your friends and, um, and yeah, so thanks again. Thank you for listening and we'll be back soon with more. Yesterday in Travel is sponsored by Via Hero, a platform that connects you to local travel experts who live where you're going. Their job is to provide expert advice and help arrange activities and logistics like lodging, guided tours, transportation, and restaurant reservations. They also share insider tips on hidden gems and activities that you might never find searching the web. When you hire a local, your money goes directly to them and they help you plan a trip that is more fun, less expensive, and also directs your tourism dollars more evenly to the communities you visit, which helps to make your trip more sustainable. Plus, locals are the best way to help you navigate safely to avoid crowds and comply with rules so that you can have peace of mind and focus on enjoying your trip. Use the code YESTERDAY at checkout to get 10% off your next customized itinerary and guidebook created just for you by one of Via Hero's amazing locals in over 20 destinations across the world. Go to www.viahero.com to find more. That's www.viahero.com to start planning your next trip with the help of a local. And remember to use the code YESTERDAY at checkout, which gets you 10% off and lets them know we sent you.